All right, well, um, I'm hoping that you're still in Matthew 9, and then I'd like you also to hold a place in the book of Ruth. So you got the first five books of Moses, and then you got Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. We happen to be in Ruth chapter 2, but um, just as I came in this morning, I was thinking about the title of this message. I think I'd probably switch the title if I had an opportunity. If you look at the screen behind me, it's Grace and Kindness from the Kinsman. Much of the book of Ruth is set in the context of a harvest. In fact, we're going to look at the barley harvest, which happened around the time of Passover, and the wheat harvest that happened at the time of Pentecost. And these harvests, these seven main festivals of Israel, where we think of Passover and Pentecost, and we think of trumpets and tabernacles, were all around agrarian periods of time, when the harvest would literally come in. In fact, the Jews believed that God gave Moses the law at Sinai at Pentecost. And you've probably heard pastors often say on the day of Pentecost when uh, Peter preached, 3,000 people came into the harvest. And the day that the law was given, I think the same amount of people died. And so the law is a tutor to drive us to Christ, and he is Lord of the harvest. That's why in Matthew 9, if you just revisit the verses that we read, Jesus, uh, verse 36, saw the multitudes, and what drove him into the mission, if you will, or into the world, was compassion. He felt compassion. Compassion is one of the great expressions of love. He felt compassion for them, Matthew 9, 36, Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. I don't follow secular music that closely today, but uh, I guess the lead singer of Linkin Park took his life. Uh, I just looked on the uh, internet quickly, and uh, the details are a bit sketchy, but I think he hung himself and 41 years old. And, you know, you start thinking about um, just life and, and how desperate people can be. We've talked recently about our service people coming back home and the alarming numbers of those who are suffering from PTSD and, and taking their lives as well. And, and life can get hard and it's difficult. And uh, Ruth and Naomi are no exception, of course, as they come back from Moab having lost really everything. And they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's a sad thing when sheep are there without a shepherd. Uh, they have no guidance, no protection. Uh, No one to really lead them and feed them. And Jesus said to the disciples, verse 37, he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, they are few. Pray. What should we pray for? One of the things that we should pray for is we should pray to the Lord of the harvest. Notice, God is the Lord of the harvest. Again, agrarian kind of crop imagery to send out workers into his harvest field. We don't need to pray that the gospel has more power. (laughs) The gospel already has power. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What we need to pray for is that more of us will share it. And share it regularly. And that's our problem. Is that we often don't see our everyday lives missionally. We don't see often, I'm not saying that this is true across the board, but this I'm preaching to myself as well, that the everyday things of life can be opportunities. We can at least build a bridge just by our behavior to maybe share the gospel with somebody. This can really transform your life if you think in this sense. Now, in the book of Ruth, if you go over to the book of Ruth, 
Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, right after the first five books of Moses, uh, we, are, we are in two, part two of this short story where we have been introduced to the main characters. We've seen, for example, a man named Elimelech, who's married to a woman named Naomi. Naomi's name means lovely or sweet, but she goes through tragedy. The tragedy is that her husband dies when they're in the land of Moab. She had followed him in the time of a famine. And then her sons married Moabite women. And we introduced Orpah and Ruth uh, into the story. And we talked about how Orpah in Hebrew means to turn the neck. And ultimately Orpah went back home, back to Moab, back to the gods of Moab. The chief god being Chemosh, who was a terrible deity. They did terrible things around him. But this character, Ruth, for whom the book is named, decided to follow her mother-in-law. And she said in these famous words, and just revisit it with me for a second, in verse uh, 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, one sixteen, or to t- turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. I want to be grafted into Israel is what she's saying. Your God, Yahweh, will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me. Now she really gives an oath in the name of Yahweh. May the Lord, that's Yahweh there, capitalized L-O-R-D is always Y-H-W-H. That's the original. May the Lord do to me and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. And a tremendous statement of faith. I'm going to leave home. She'd probably never been to Bethlehem. I'm going to leave mom and dad. I'm going to leave Moab, the territory I know, the gods that I've been introduced to from the time I was a child. And I'm going to go with a mother-in-law who has nothing to offer. In fact, that's why Naomi was saying, go back. I have nothing to give you. I've lost everything. And they go to this place that we've been introduced to in our Bibles called Bethlehem. Beit Lachem is house is bait and Lachem is bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Ironically, there was a famine in the house of bread. And so that's why they left. Now they come back some 10 to 12 years later, really nothing. And Naomi comes into town. And when she comes into town, there's a stir. And the people are going, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? Maybe gossiping about her. Maybe surprised at her appearance. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that she's probably just battered and beat up. And her words back that up. She says, don't call me sweet. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the heavy hand of the Lord has been on me. I left full. Of course, she left in a famine. But she at least left with a husband and two sons. And I've come back empty. She came back with the Moabitess Ruth, and Naomi couldn't imagine what God was going to do. In fact, what's really happening here is that Ruth and Naomi are part of the eternal story of redemption. In fact, from Ruth, and incredibly from Rahab, who's a Gentile harlot in the book of Joshua, and from Ruth, who's a Gentile who links uh, arms with Naomi, they are both, both these women are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Write down Matthew 1.5, that's where that record is. A surprising genealogy, and of course, the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. And this season that they're now moving in is into a harvest of hope, away from a chapter of hardship. We end uh, chapter 1, verse 22, by saying they came to Bethlehem. 
at the beginning of the barley harvest. So we, that's where we left off. And we move into chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman. The word kinsman is moda in Hebrew. It means a family member. It could mean a close friend, but here it means a family member. He's a kinsman. And what's going to be added to the name uh, of Boaz, which we'll see in a moment, this idea of kinsman is a kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew, the word is goel. Some of you have heard that before. It's G-O-E-L, put into English, goel. And a kinsman redeemer was someone who could buy back land that was lost. Let's say that you owned a parcel of land back in the day, and you lost the land. Uh, In time of famine, you couldn't take care of it. You had to sell it because you were behind on debts, whatever the case may be. That land could be purchased by somebody else, but then your kinsman could come back and purchase the land. But not only could he purchase the land, this kinsman goel or redeemer could purchase people out of slavery. Some people had to sell themselves into servitude uh, because they owed too much money or they, this was the only way to pay off debt. And so they would sell themselves into some sort of slavery and the kinsman redeemer uh, could come and buy them out of that situation. And Ruth's story, I've been telling you, is our story because we have a kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus, and he bought us out of the slave market of sin. He bought us from Egypt, if you will. He took us out of Moab, if you will. He brought us into the heart of his father, and he redeemed us, not with silver and gold from our aimless conduct, but he redeemed us with his own, what? Precious blood. He purchased us. And so this... This book is a shadow, like so much of the Old Testament, of the coming Redeemer. Now, they had a kinsman of her husband. Her husband has died. He's a man of great wealth, the NAS says. The New King James says the same. A worthy man, says the ESV, and a man of standing, says the NIV. He was some well-to-do man, well-liked in the community, probably... Uh, wealthy as well. He was of the family of Elimelech, that is Naomi's dead husband, and his name is Boaz. Boaz means fleetness or strength. Uh, Commentators have pointed out that Boaz's name is a direct contrast with the names of the sons of Naomi. Those names, as we were introduced to them in the first chapter, are Malon and Kilion. And there's a little bit of debate about their names But scholarship says their names mean something like this, sickness and annihilation, or sick and weakly. Now, when people who are critical of the Bible read something like this, they're like, oh, that's got to be a narrator's invention. Well, I don't think so. Uh, Hebrew names had great significance, and they often fit well with the person's personality. Now, I don't know if Malon and Kilion came out and they struggled with sickness. I don't know if they were just weak in terms of they weren't very masculine. I don't know what the deal is with all of that. But I know that Boaz is a contrast, at least in this sense, to them. And in fact, scholars would say his name means something like this, in him is strength. And, you know, whenever I think of strength, I don't think of strength in the sense of, man, you know, I have great personal strength. No, our strength is in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The source of our strength in this crazy world is God Almighty. His love, his word, 
his spirit. Now, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, so we're introduced to Boaz, not a lot of commentary. He's going to take on great prominence. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, so now they've limped back into town. They probably haven't eaten for a while. They, they have really nothing. Ruth takes the initiative. She says, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find ken. Favor, the Hebrew word is C-H-E-N, ken. Uh, this is the Old Testament word for grace. I'm going to go glean in the field and maybe I'll find grace in the sight of somebody. So she says this, Ruth, who is a foreigner, says this to Naomi, who's a local. And Naomi's only response is, go, my daughter. Go. I don't know how long they sat there. I don't know how long the conversation is, but take a look. Verse 2 says, please let me go. It sounds to me, reading between the lines, like the implication was there was a little back and forth. I think, I think for a while, Ruth was saying, I need to go glean in the field. We need to eat. We need something to eat. And I think Naomi was saying, no, you can't go. You're a foreigner. You're a widow. This is a dangerous time. The book is set in the time of Judges where everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. There was social chaos and anarchy. There was no king. The word of God had been put on the back burner. And I think Naomi's saying, I, I'm older and I don't know if I can do this, but I'm concerned that you go out there and be exposed to these guys who are, you know, harvesting the field. Who knows what they'll do to you? Who knows what will happen to you? It's a great risk. And I think Ruth finally said, please let me go. We're going to starve if I don't go. And I think, I, I, reading between the lines here, finally Naomi said, go, my daughter, go. She went with, of course, the hope of grace, finding grace in somebody's eyes into the harvest field. And, of course, God had made some laws that grace was to be given to those who were impoverished and widows and orphans. If you take a look, go to the book of Leviticus, just not, not far back. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Go to chapter 19 for a second. Chapter 19, look at verse 9. In the law of God, Leviticus 19, 9 God said these words. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, Leviticus 19.9, you shall not reap the very, to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, Leviticus 19.10. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Flip over to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is a well-known chapter because it lays out the feasts of Israel, the harvest uh, times. And here's what God says in the setting of that uh, teaching. When you reap, Leviticus 23, 22, the harvest of your land. Moreover, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Oftentimes when God gave these commandments, he would say, you were a foreigner, an alien in the land of Egypt, so you need to have compassion on those who enter your land and have nothing. So leave the corners of the field. The next book is Deuteronomy, Numbers and then Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy 24. Here's a repetition, but it gets a little bit more specific. Numbers, Deuteronomy 24. It says, when you reap, uh, 24, 19... Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, 
You shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, 2419, for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. There was a blessing, back to Ruth, attached to being benevolent to the poor. He who waters others will himself be watered, says the Bible. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, you will what? You will reap generously. Look, God does say in harvest imagery, sowing is the language of the harvest. It's sowing seed. You sow, you will reap. You sow sparingly, you'll reap a little. You sow a lot, you will reap a lot. In what way? Not always financially. It can be many other blessings, but sometimes it is financially. 2 Corinthians 9 does teach that principle as well. And so we're supposed to give because our Lord is a giver. In fact, Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give. We all know the verse. I'm not sure we, I'm not sure we practice it, but, but it sounds pretty good. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But I think when you are a giver, you start to see that. And so she's going to go out and reap the corners of the field. But let's not get the, the picture wrong. There, even though harvesting was a time of song and joy and there was excitement in the air and the famine had ended, not everybody was living up to the law in the time of the judges. You went out to that field as a single woman with a bunch of men working in the heat of the day. Who knows what's going to happen? Can you imagine the fear and trepidation of somebody like Ruth? She's from Moab. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. She's come into the fields. Imagine her fear of not knowing what to expect. She probably doesn't even know what to do. She's going to just try to figure it out because the most common desire we have is for food, right? And they haven't eaten for a while. So she's going to go out. And, and just by the way, the work, even though it did give you a certain modicum of uh, dignity to do this, it wasn't like you were begging on the street corner. This was like collecting aluminum cans for money. You're doing something, but it's not very glamorous. Let's just face it. Uh, there was a provision here, though, in the law that if you were without, you could do something and the grace of others, and, and of course you were working for it, um, the grace of others would be bestowed upon you and God promised a blessing. In fact, this is a command. It's not a suggestion to leave the corners of your field. It's a command. Now, not everybody follows the commandments, as we well know. Would to God that we, we did. But she didn't know what she was going to get. So she ventures out, ventures out into the harvest looking for grace. And so she departed, verse 3, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. She followed them. In, in Matthew 13, Jesus gave the image of the last days, saying that the reapers were angels. He uses the harvest imagery in Matthew 13 as the end of the age, and that the angels will reap the harvest, and there will be the wheat will come into the Father's barn, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Well, she happened, look at verse 3, to come to the portion of the field. And you have to imagine there's no clear markings in these days. The fields, you know, go from one to the other. She just happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to this guy we're introduced to in verse 1. His name is Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. She just happened to end up in this field. 
Have you ever been somewhere and you meet somebody or you get a chance to minister to somebody or you're hurting and someone shows up just at the right place and just at the right time and you say, this must be more than a quinky dink. Aha! The Lord of the harvest knows about me and cares about me. Sometimes I'm listening to the radio and I need to hear a word from the Lord and I'll hear exactly what I needed to hear on the radio. And sometimes I say, how did that preacher know? And people will say to me, Pastor Michael, what you were preaching this morning on the radio spoke right to me. When did you preach that? And I was like, two years ago. Like, what? The Lord can use a message from two years ago to speak to my circumstances today? Yes, because he's the Lord of the harvest, and he has grace for us. He knows where you are. He knows where you are spiritually. He knows where you are mentally. He knows where you are geographically. Where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? Right? And so the Lord can often do this, and he does, and she just happened. I think the narrator is kind of just using some irony here. You could say it in modern vernacular, as luck would have it. Was this good luck, good fortune, or the hidden hand of God? Is it chance or providence? Well, God can work in the ordinary common sense decisions of our lives, but remember, Ruth did get up and go, and that's when the clock really started moving. So you've, some of you have heard this. Charles Stanley says, God does not steer a parked car. All right? Uh, God can work in the common sense actions of everyday life. If we have a need, if you have a need for a job, go and look for a job. And God can meet you right in that activity, right? He can meet you in the common sense decisions of everyday life. Providence. What is providence? It means God's care. It means he wants to provide for us. What are the odds of all the fields in Bethlehem that she would end up Right here, Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Providence means purpose. Sometimes when people hear about the providence of God, they wonder, are we just pieces on a chessboard that God is just moving around? No. But God does still work according to his will. We're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure or purpose. We don't work for our salvation, Philippians 2.12. We work out our salvation. We have salvation. We are just supposed to work out what God is working in. So as you are waiting for specific instructions in the everyday stuff of life, like going to work, mowing your lawn, saying hi to your neighbor, going to the store, God can meet you there in his providence. Do you believe that? God is sovereign. A Latin proverb says, providence assists not the idol. <laughs> if you're going to sit around, I'm not sure if much is going to happen to you. Would they please show up at my door with that check and the balloons and the flowers? Oh, Lord. Look, that would be cool. But it's probably not going to happen. I know. Some of us say, but it happens to some people. I know, but not you. <laughs> or maybe not me. I don't know. 
See, Naomi and Ruth had no idea what God was really doing. He was working on so many levels. A man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. And God works, how many? All things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his what? His purpose. And his purpose is listed in the next verse. To conform you into the image of his son. Some of us who are thinking, we think, well, wow, I mean, there's been famine and loss of loved ones, and, and now I know the story's changed, but what about that stuff? That stuff is hard stuff, no doubt. Loss of husband and loss of two sons. But somewhere in providence is still even God's benevolent working in those things. At least we hold on that he can work them together for good. Warren Wiersbe says, God is constantly working with us, Mark 16, 20, in us, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, and for us, Romans 8, 29. We, we cannot forget that Romans 8 says that God is for us, and if God is for us, who can be against us? So ultimately, we could say, well, God is working out his plan for his glory, true, and theologians would clap at that, true, the glory of God, the glory of God, but it's also for your good. God knows what's good for us, and so... Behold, suddenly, some surprise in the language, verse 4, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Not only did she find the right field, but the right timing, which, again, is miraculous. I mean, I've had situations in my life where I showed up at a place and a certain people sh person showed up at that time and they were on my heart, and you're like, oh, man. And then you got to do something with it, too, and not pretend like you didn't see them. <laughs> Ooh, you ever been there before? Oh, I know you're working, Lord. Oh, I don't know if I want to be on board with this one. <laughs> Suddenness and surprise, Boaz comes to Bethlehem. Sounds like the timing was pretty near to her arrival, but we'll talk about that in a second. He came from Bethlehem to the fields. He said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Hey, man, that sounds almost liturgical. May the Lord be with you. Come on. May the Lord bless you, Pastor Michael. That's what you're supposed to say. Loudly. I don't know if they had just had their coffee. May the Lord bless you and the Lord bless you. How many of you are happy workers? How many of you say, God, yeah, God bless you? What are you talking about blessings? Six in the morning. Yeah. And Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, something like a foreman, whose young woman is this? All of a sudden, the camera pans to Ruth. She's kind of a stranger in the mix. She's not uh, a woman that's been seen around these parts. I mean, after all, he's the boss. He knows who he's hired. He knows who works this field regularly. But he says, who's the girl? Who is she? He may be asking about her employer. He may be asking about her husband. Yeah. <laughs> Whose wife is she? Is she married? I mean, it's a legit question. If you don't have a wife, it's probably one of the first questions you want to ask if you see someone who's an option. <laughs> right? I mean, let's be real. I mean, I don't know how you always ask the question. Uh, I, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Are you uh, attached? <laughs> Was it 
love at first sight? Like, who is that? Maybe. Does love at first sight happen? Sure. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking, but the servant replied, the foreman, he said, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Okay. She's, she's the one that limped into town with Naomi, and she's out here in the field. And she said, seven, please let me glean after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. There's two renderings of this. If you have an NIV, it says, she's worked steadily from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. One view of this particular verse, which is a little difficult to translate, is that she showed up, she asked the foreman if she could glean, and the foreman said, mm, I don't know, hold on, uh, wait there. There's another rendering of the Hebrew here that means she had worked steadily and had just now taken a break. I think you could go in either direction, but uh, either way it shows tenacity. If she waited, it means she didn't go to another field even though there were fields all around. She had a sense that she should be here. And some of you have sensed stuff like that before. You're somewhere where you know you're supposed to be and even though sledding is difficult at the moment, you have not been released, so you stay. I'm sure she was praying. I'm sure she was saying, Lord, send me to the right field that I might receive grace from somebody. Or she may have been working steadily. She showed herself as a go-getter. She worked hard, except for a short rest in the shelter, says verse 7. And Boaz said to Ruth, now he addresses her uh, personally. He says, listen carefully, my daughter. Why does he call her my daughter? Well, because she's younger than him. But it's also a familial term. I mean, think about Ruth for a second. She has nothing in Bethlehem. And when someone says to her, my daughter... I mean, that's pretty cool. Of all the New Testament stories that I know of, there's only one time that Jesus called someone my daughter. You know who it was? It was the woman who had the hemorrhage of blood who just wanted to touch the end of his garment. And she said, if I can just touch his cloak, I will be well. And Jesus said, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go into peace is the way you could translate this. Remember, Boaz is a type of Christ. He's the kinsman redeemer. He's a shadow of the coming redeemer who will purchase us with his blood. And when Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, man, there's a beautiful picture here. And he says to her, don't glean in another field. Don't go anywhere. Furthermore, don't go on from this one. Stay here with my maids. Don't leave. You, you have a place here. You have found grace here. When you come to Christ, he will in no wise cast you out. Sometimes people hesitate to come to Jesus because they think, man, maybe I don't have the right background. Maybe I don't have the right pedigree. Maybe I've just done too many wrong things. Maybe Jesus won't accept me. Jesus says, no, if you come, I will extend grace to you. I will make you my son. I will make you my daughter. I won't reject you. Just come. And he says, don't go anywhere else. Well, all of a sudden, can you imagine the heart of Ruth? She has found grace in the face 
of Boaz. And we have found grace in Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love for us. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God wants to bestow grace upon us. He is Lord of the harvest. He says, let your eyes, verse 9, be on the field which they reap. Go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. Don't be afraid. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars. Drink from what the servants draw. Look, I don't even want you drawing water for yourself. Don't waste any time with that. You can go drink with the rest of the workers. Everything that I have is yours. That's what Jesus says to us as believers. He surprises us with his extraordinary said, which is used three times in this book, which is, it speaks of refuge, it speaks of loyalty and love. said is the stuff of covenant love of God, loving kindness. And she, well, when she experienced what he said, she, Ruth, fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Why this grace? Do you ever just park sometimes and say, Lord, why? Why have you allowed this in my life? Why have you been so good to me? Are you ever brought to your knees by uh, what God has placed into your life? And you begin to count your blessings. You know, do you truly realize what you have? I mean, just the ability to get in a car and drive here today and be able to study your Bible and think and reason and love people around you, man, we have so much. Why have you taken notice of me? Why have I found favor in your sight? But deep down, she had to say, this is just the person I'm looking for. I was looking for. David said to God, who am I, uh, O O Lord God? What is my house that thou has brought me this far? 2 Samuel 7, 18. And God said, David, I'm going to build a house for you. And Boaz answered and said to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, verse 11 after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. I've heard about you. I've heard about what you did. Do you know in the letters in Revelation 2 and 3, oftentimes Jesus says to the churches, I know your works, I know your deeds, I know what you have done. God knows what you do. He knows when you've taken a risk of faith. He knows when you've stepped out to love somebody. He knows when you've passed some difficult thresholds and made a commitment to leave and cleave to the God of the Bible. And he says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Man, all of a sudden, Boaz, he greets his workers with a blessing and he now prays a blessing over this woman who is down on her face before him. And he says, may the Lord bless you. You have sought refuge under his wings and may he reward you and may he bless you. Can you imagine the feeling stirring inside of Ruth? She had to be thinking, man, I I was wondering if someone was going to abuse me today. I was wondering if maybe I would even die out here. And instead... I haven't been enslaved or abused. I have a man who's shown some interest in me. Extra (laughs) advantage there. And he's praying over me. He even gave me access to the water cooler or the coffee maker, to put it in modern terminology. The Keurig that's hidden in the boss's office when you have access to that. 
And the coffee that goes with it, the little cups. Oh, yeah. In John 17, the Lord prays for his church. In Psalm 18, David writes, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock whom I, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 36, verse 7 says, How precious is thy loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of thy wings. Psalm 91, verse 4 says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. And Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted you to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her, her wings, but you were unwilling. Wow, what a Savior. He invites us to come under his shelter all the time. All day long, he stretches out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The end of Romans 10 says, he just says, Come, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Do you want rest? Come to Jesus and stay in his beautiful presence. Be like a Mary. Sit at his feet. She said, I have found favor in your sight, verse 13. My Lord, for you have comforted me. You've spoken reassurance. And indeed, you've spoken hesed. You've spoken kindly. You've spoken to my heart, to your maidservant. She calls herself his maidservant. Though I'm not like your, one of your maidservants, I'm different. I'm a foreigner. God, the Bible says, is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Sometimes you feel like he's going to hammer you and he speaks blessing over you. And you're like, wow, Lord, Really? You know who I am, right? You know how I was thinking an hour ago, right? You know what I muttered under my breath on the 91, right? <laughs> yep, 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 but I'm no longer counting your sins against you. In Jesus Christ. I see you through my son, and I want to bless you. Amazing. And at the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, girl. I added the girl. <laughs> now this is when you know you're in. That you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Boaz was Italian. I am so with the book of Ruth now. Come on. You know, when you, you go to the Italian restaurant and they give you the bread and they give you those two little things and you put the olive oil in the vinegar. Oh. If you let somebody dunk in your mixture, they are loved by you. If you go, like, don't mess it up. Don't stir it. Did you take a bite of that bread and dip it in my mixture? <laughs> if you love them, it's cool. You just say there's an extra anointing <laughs> right there. Anyway, come on, dip, dip your bread. So she sat beside the reapers. Man, we, we've got a little meal here after the end of the workday. And he, oh, look at, he what? He served her. Oh, it makes me think of John 13 when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Boaz should have been served. He was the boss. He was the owner. And he serves a Moabite foreigner. What? Oh, but this is what God does for us. He comes and serves us. He says, I stand at the door and knock. To the church, if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20 is written to a church, a Laodicean church, a lukewarm church, who's told, open the door to intimate fellowship again. 
because I love you. Those whom I love, I discipline. You're lukewarm, it's true, but open the door and I will dine with you and you with me. We'll have intimate fellowship again. Well, here is Ruth at this table. She eats the roasted grain. She ate, she was satisfied. There was some left. She put it in a lamb bag. They didn't have doggy bags back in the day. They had lamb bags. <laughs> Took some of you a little bit to get that one, but that's all right. And when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not insult her. Man, look at this protection. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain. Help her out a little bit. From the bundles and leave it that she may glean. And do not rebuke her. Don't insult her. Don't rebuke her. Get her some of the best stuff and let her glean. Oh, this, this sure seems like there's some love here, right? He's got Ruth's back. Blessings upon blessing, man. She had to be thinking, wow, I got the water cooler, the coffee maker. I ate the roasted grain. I dipped in his vinegar. And now... They're leaving piles for me. Yep, put it in the bag. Yep, (laughs) put it in the bag. Candy, baby Ruth, Snickers bars. (laughs) So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out, which is something with a curved stick or a wooden hammer, what she had gleaned. So she beat it out into into a form of flour. And what it... What it was, what it amounted to, was about an ephah of barley. Now, you, all of you can look in your study Bibles to see what an ephah is. There's a little debate about it. Some pe- people say it's about a half a bushel, if that helps you at all. I don't know if that helps you at all. I don't live in the world of bushels, personally, but some people say it's three-fifths of a bushel or almost a full bushel. But what she had was something that would be celebrated for, you know, even uh, the greatest of days, uh, Warren Wearsby says, Ruth's half bushel of grain was the first fruits of all that Boaz would do in the future. Just as the Holy Spirit within us is the first fruits of all that God has promised to us, Romans 8.23. Probably about a week's supply versus, uh, of bread for the, these ladies. And she took it up and she went into the city. Now, I don't know how she was carrying it. She might have had a bag over her shoulder. But can you imagine this? She's had a day. This is a good day. Threw it over her shoulder. The theme music for Rocky begins to play. I think she was. I mean, this has been a victorious day. And she took it up into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she also took it out and gave Naomi from that lamb or doggy bag what she had, had left after she was satisfied. She said, look, oh, have I had a day. Oy, you have leftovers too? Yep. Go ahead and eat those up. Mm, yeah. And then she had the bushel and things were going on and a wonderful meal, counting blessings. And her mother-in-law said to her, here's a Jewish mom, where did you glean today? <laughs> and where did you go to work? What happened, sweetie? Tell me all the details. Now, you would imagine that Naomi had to be a little bit, like, worried. You know, she sent her out, finally. I don't know what's going to happen. But when she came home, and she had this big bushel, and she had leftovers, too, Naomi was saying, wow, maybe they can call me Naomi again. Where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. She saw the bushel. She saw what happened. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, oh, you have hit the jackpot, sweetheart. Can I get an amen? May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his hesed, his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. And he's rich. (laughs) This is when, as a mom, you're going, oh, he's spiritual, wealthy. You need to like him. (laughs) And all the parents said, look. (laughs) <laughs> Here's some practical advice for young people. What your parents say about the prospective suitor should not be dismissed quickly. The people who love you the most are going to try to watch out for your back and don't dismiss what they say about the boy or the girl that you bring home. Parents have secret cue cards that they hold up sometimes. Six, eight, nine and a half. (laughs) But don't just dismiss this because the people who have loved you the most throughout your lifetime want the best for you. And if you've been dating a guy for three months and you're like, oh, you don't know anything. He's wonderful. I don't know. You might want to just pay a little bit more attention to mom and dad. They have your best interest at heart. And so do your good friends especially your Christian friends. Well, Naomi's excited and filled with hope again, and that's what God gives us in the harvest. And Ruth said, Ruth the Moabite said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And all the girls went, Have you ever seen girls do that? Oh, it's so cute, and he said to stay too. (laughs) And Naomi said to Ruth, Her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter. It's good that you go out with his maids, lest others fall upon you in another field. And so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest. The barley harvest is Passover season. The wheat harvest is Pentecost season. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, here's the power of hope. The story has turned, and it's going to get better. And the Lord of the harvest. And sometimes we we end up coming to Jesus Christ at desperate times. And we say, man, I don't know if I'm going to find grace in anybody's eyes. The world's been against me. And we go out. We don't know what we're going to find. Maybe you ventured into a church today for the first time. Some of you, it's been been fairly recent. You've, You've exhausted all other possibilities. And you walk back into a church. Some of you have been gone for a while. And you said, man, is there going to be some hope here? I got past the door. Lightning didn't strike me there. So that's one in my favor. And God says, you're welcome to my family. I want to adopt you into my family. I want to make you a co-heir with Christ. In fact, everything I have, I will give to you. And Jesus even says to the church at Laodicea, you will sit on my throne just as as I overcame and sat on my father's throne. How about that? The Roman emperor is not going to let you sit on his throne. But Jesus says, if you overcome, you will sit on my throne. You will be my family. You'll be a co-heir. And I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy 
of your master. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're so grateful for the harvest imagery for Naomi and Ruth, for Boaz, for this incredible gospel story that points us to the Lord of the harvest who wants to bring in a harvest of souls. And, and we're harvesters as well, Lord. We're, we're on a mission of reconciliation into this community. As we go out through missionaries, we go out through the radio, we go out through the community of saints making an impact. And we pray, Lord, that you will make us compassionate and you will help us to be about your business. Thank you, Father, that you have grafted us in, just like Ruth, we've been grafted in. If we're Gentiles today, grafted into the people, the covenants, the promises, but especially grafted into your heart. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we are very humbled and grateful. And sometimes we want to fall on our face, Lord, and say, who am I? That you would bestow such favor upon me. Thank you that you are that kind of God. And thank you that your love never fails and never gives up on me. And so, Lord, uh, as our hearts are humbled and bowed before you, and I'm just going to ask if you would stay in an attitude of worship. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't know this grace. Maybe you are living in desperate times. You've gone through losses. You're wondering if he will welcome you. He will. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. But he's not going to force you. He's been wooing you, but you must come. You must believe. He's not going to repent for you. You must repent. Trust in him. Turn away from trying to do it your own way. You've exhausted those avenues. Turn to him. Turn to God through Jesus Christ. Something like this right now. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Pray it if it's you. I'm sorry for my sin. I thank you for your love and your grace. I'm turning my life over to you right now. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I repent of my sin. I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior, Lord. I want to be born again to a living hope. Change me from the inside out. Make me your child. If you're a prodigal and you're just coming home, we just want to welcome you back. God welcomes you back with loving arms. His arms are open to you. There's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who comes to repentance. And Father, for this beautiful congregation filled with Ruth-type characters and people like Boaz, thank you for them, Lord. Keep them strong. Keep them blessed. Keep them encouraged. Keep them protected. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.